Bonjour, agus Chiadiv. Welcome to The Irish in Canada, the podcast exploring the histories and legacies of Irish immigrants and their Canadian descendants. I'm your host, Jane McGaughy. This is episode number two, Grace Marks. On August 2nd, 1843, the Chronicle and Gazette newspaper printed the following story. Quote, it is our most painful task to record the most horrible tale of murder which has probably ever happened in Canada West. Thomas Kinnear, a Scotch gentleman of good family and fortune, was found on Sunday horribly murdered in his own house at Richmond Hill, the body thrust into the cellar. Suspicion fell on his servants. One of them, a man named McDermott, was traced into town with one of his female servants. End quote. James McDermott and Grace Marks, two Irish servants, were arrested for the brutal murders of Thomas Kinnear and his housekeeper, Nancy Montgomery. McDermott was portrayed in the press as a wicked, wild Irishman. The fact that both of the accused were from Ireland fit with social prejudices that the Irish were naturally violent and criminal. At McDermott's trial, it was revealed that Nancy Montgomery had been pregnant at the time of her murder. After only ten minutes, the jury found McDermott guilty, and he was sentenced to hang. Grace Marks also received a guilty verdict, but in her case, the jury recommended mercy. Grace fainted when the judge condemned her to death by hanging. But her sentence was later commuted to life in prison because of her extreme youth, she was not yet 17, and because she was a woman. James McDermott was hanged in Toronto, on November 21, 1843. To the very end, he maintained that Grace was the real mastermind behind the murders. Even on the morning of his execution, he still insisted that Grace had been the one to strangle Nancy Montgomery with the white handkerchief. Grace Marks is wrong in stating she had no hand in the murder, he said. She was the means from beginning to end. For the next 29 years, Grace Marks was locked away in Kingston Penitentiary, Canada's version of Alcatraz or Dartmoor. Then, in the summer of 1872, she received a pardon from the Dominion government. After walking out of the enormous gates of that notorious prison, she had only 24 hours to leave Canada. She crossed from Kingston to Wolf Island and then on to Cape Vincent, New York. We don't know what happened next. Despite being one of the most famous women in 19th century Canada, we don't know when Grace died, or how, or what kind of a life she lived after being pardoned. She simply disappeared. Summers in Ontario, known in 1843 as Canada West, can get very hot. Heavy humidity clings to the towns and farms north of Lake Ontario. There can also be a gentle sweetness in the air, especially if you're away from the city. Richmond Hill is now considered part of the Greater Toronto Area, or GTA, but 180 years ago, it was a small farming community somewhat north of the big city. Think of Avonlea from Anne of Green Gables with fewer people, just as many farms, and sadly no Gilbert Blythe. A quiet, simple village, probably not where you would expect the colony's most infamous double murder to take place. 
When I imagine what happened on Thomas Kinnear's farm in that late July of 1843, my first thought is always what it must have smelled like that weekend. Was there my favorite summertime mix of pine trees and sand in the air, or the watery scent in early morning when the grass is cooled? Was the sunshine soft and lemony, or was it a baking, oppressive noonday heat that makes your clothes feel itchy? Was there that seductive, almost honeyed bouquet at twilight when the warm soil mixes with a tiny chill in the air and the fireflies come out? On a hot summer day like that, the coppery tang of the blood in that farmhouse must have been absolutely sickening for the neighbors who found the bodies. And Grace Marks, what did she smell that day that set it apart from other times? Was there an odd mix of sweat and bought perfume on the dress of Nancy Montgomery's that Grace wore when she and McDermott ran away from the farm? Was the cellar musty and earthy when they hid Nancy's body beneath the wash tub? Did a low, sulfurous smokiness cling to the air around the farmhouse after McDermott had shot Thomas Kinnear through the chest? Grace Marks is famous now as a fictional character in a best-selling, award-winning novel. But once, she was a real woman. She breathed. She laughed. She smelled the world around her. And I know that she knew the base gray tang that lives in wet limestone, because her prison in Kingston was built of hewn limestone blocks, just like the rest of that city. I grew up less than a kilometer from where Grace Marks was imprisoned for most of her life. Grace and I must have smelled many of the same things, except for what she experienced on that hot day in late July 1843, when she stopped being a witness to history and instead became a part of it. The murders of Thomas Kinnear and Nancy Montgomery in 1843 have been gossiped about for nearly 200 years, as has the question of whether or not the young Irish girl was truly guilty of the crime. It's probably one of the few tales from Irish-Canadian history that many people have heard. A 19th-century writer, Susanna Moody, followed the case and wrote a lurid, sensationalist account of the murders in her 1853 memoir, Life in the Clearings versus the Bush. A century later, Margaret Atwood learned about the murders from Moody's book and then wrote her own version, Alias Grace, published in 1996. Atwood's novel was turned into a hugely popular Netflix CBC miniseries. Grace's story has been a rich subject for authors, filmmakers, historians, podcasters, and the general public since the moment of her arrest, and it doesn't look like it's going to stop anytime soon. Margaret Atwood, fittingly, has perhaps the best explanation for why Grace Marks has been so fascinating for so long. Quote, the details were sensational. Grace Marks was uncommonly pretty and also extremely young. Kinnear's housekeeper, Nancy Montgomery, had previously given birth to an illegitimate child and was Thomas Kinnear's mistress. At her autopsy, she was found to be pregnant. Grace and her fellow servant, James McDermott, had run away to the United States together and were assumed by the press to be lovers. The combination of sex, violence, and the deplorable insubordination of the lower classes was most attractive to the journalists of the day. What I'm interested in with Grace, and with James McDermott too, 
is how their Irishness factored into how they were perceived by upper Canadian society and how they've been portrayed ever since. It's a theme that comes up in Atwood's novel and in Susanna Moody's recollections and Sarah Pauli's directing choices. The voluntary confession of Grace Marks was allegedly made in the Toronto jail four days before McDermott's execution. My name is Grace Marks, it reads, and I am the daughter of John Marks, who lives in the township of Toronto. We came to this country from the north of Ireland about three years ago. This makes Grace part of the massive wave of emigration from Ulster to British North America in the pre-famine period. There has often been a presumption that Irish Protestants came to Canada, while Irish Catholics went to the United States. It's, of course, immensely more complicated than that, but complicated history doesn't always fit well in Facebook posts or clever headlines. James McDermott, meanwhile, stated in his own voluntary confession that he was a 24-year-old Irish Catholic who had been in Canada since 1837 and had served in various regiments since the 1837 rebellion. James was taken on as a servant on Thomas Kinnear's farm at the end of June 1843, about a week before Grace was hired by Nancy Montgomery to be the maid. Both of these Irish servants had only been on the farm for about a month before the murders occurred. Sex does have its role in what happened on Thomas Kinnear's farm. In the 19th century, and long before, there was a common assumption that the Irish en masse were overly sexual. They had too many children, they had no self-control, they were slaves to their lust, etc., etc. Bigotry about Catholicism certainly had a role to play in the popularity of this slur, but Irish Protestants could be accused of hypersexuality as well. Grace was an Irish Protestant. By contrast, the English were seen by themselves, of course, as far more restrained and proper in all sexual matters. The Scots and the Welsh could go either way, depending on how Celtic they were at a given time. Thomas Kinnear, remember, was Scottish. Two weeks after arriving on the farm, Grace allegedly learned from McDermott that Nancy and Thomas were lovers. I was determined to find it out, said Grace, and I was afterwards convinced that they did do so, for her bed was never slept in except when Mr. Kinnear was absent. A neighbor of Kinnear's, William Harrison, was only a child at the time of the murders, but recalled decades later that Grace was of a lively disposition and pleasant manners and may have been an object of jealousy to Nancy. According to Susanna Moody's version of the tale, McDermott confessed to his lawyer that Grace was jealous of Nancy and wanted McDermott to kill the housekeeper but to spare Kinnear because the master was so handsome and good-natured to her. Speculation can run riot about just what Grace experienced as a servant in Kinnear's household, something that Margaret Atwood plays with in intriguing ways in her novel. Meanwhile, many sources, Moody and Atwood included, have insinuated or flat-out stated that Grace and McDermott were sexually involved, either before or after the murders. We all know that sex sells, but to be frank, Sex doesn't get much action in Canadian history. How many people have focused on the sex life of Prime Minister Lester Pearson compared to President John F. Kennedy? Canada's past, especially in the 19th century, usually has an image of being a bit boring, a bit stuffy, and certainly not violent 
or sexual or bloody. Obviously, none of that is true, and a lot of it is now being revisited. Canada has a very bloody, violent, and sexual past, and the Kinnear murders brought it all to a head. Of course, we'll never know what really happened within the Kinnear household in the weeks before Thomas and Nancy were killed. Was Grace the instigator of the murders? Was she jealous of Nancy? Did she want Kinnear for herself? Or was she also a victim, forced to act with McDermott because he threatened to kill her? Was she the one who strangled Nancy in the cellar with the white handkerchief? The more you read about what happened, the less you seem to know. And then things get more complicated because the fictitious versions of what happened in that farmhouse with those Irish servants have been taken as fact. I love teaching alias Grace, but I always have to spend time separating out what we know as the real history and what Margaret Atwood invented. Here's a handy comparison. What was the real Anne Boleyn like compared to all of the movies and novels that have been written about her since she had her head cut off? How does fiction shape what we think about real history? It's a big question. Grace Marks can be read in the same way as any real-life character in a movie, except that Grace wasn't a queen or a princess or an actress or author or anything that would have made her known in her own time without some sort of scandal attached to her. History tends to remember women who were notorious, especially if they were also poor. Grace was a teenage girl from the north of Ireland who had moved from employer to employer in only a handful of years until she ended up on Thomas Kinnear's farm in Richmond Hill and then spent the next three decades in prison and the asylum. Susanna Moody visited the real Grace Marks twice, once at Kingston Penn and a second time at the Provincial Lunatic Asylum in Toronto, where Grace had been moved nine years after the murders. When she was a teenager, everyone had commented on Grace's good looks and pleasing personality. In Kingston Penn, Moody had thought Grace would be, quote, rather handsome were it not for the long curved chin, which gives, as it always does to most persons who have this facial defect, a cunning, cruel expression. But at the asylum in Toronto, Moody, quote, recognized the singular face of Grace Marks, no longer sad and despairing, but lighted up with the fire of insanity and glowing with a hideous and fiend-like merriment. As well as being too sexual and too violent, the Irish were also thought of in the 19th century as being more prone to insanity than other people. Grace Marks spending time in a lunatic asylum fit with a pattern Susanna Moody's readers would have expected. We'll never know if Grace Marks was guilty or innocent. We'll never know what happened to her after she was pardoned and moved to the United States, vanishing from all historical records. But it is very tempting to ask just how notorious she would be today if she had only been born in Scotland. Next time on The Irish in Canada, we'll look at a place that the real Grace Marks saw on her journey up the St. Lawrence River as a new immigrant an island that for many people is at the very heart of what it means to be Irish-Canadian. Thanks for listening to The Irish in Canada. 
The show was researched, written, and narrated by me, Jane McGaughy. This season was edited and mixed by Patrick McMaster and produced by Marion Mulvenna. Our theme music was composed and performed by Kate Bevan Baker, and our logo was designed by Claire McCauley. Many thanks to the School of Irish Studies at Concordia University in Montreal, the Canadian Irish Studies Foundation, Le Gouvernement de Québec, and the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada for their support. If you like the show, please subscribe, rate, and review us on your favourite podcast app. You can spread the word about the Irish in Canada by following us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at Irish Canada Pod. Our website is the Irish in Canada Podcast.ca. That's where you can find show notes for our episodes, including lists of sources and recommendations for further reading. Until next time, Gora Maogif.